Well, good morning to you guys. Do you know what this is? This is a water bottle. What I love about this water bottle is it's actually called a double-walled insulated water bottle. So what that means is that I can pour cold water in here and it will stay cold for all, uh, almost a full 24 hours. I can also put hot liquids in here and it will stay hot for 12 hours. So it's really cool to carry around. I don't, I don't usually put hot water or hot drinks in there, but I do like having cold water when I drink. And I don't put anything else in. I don't put juice or Kool-Aid or, or tomato juice or any of that stuff. I just keep water in here. But I always try to have it with me. And you know, the other day, I was driving into town. I had taken somebody to go to a doctor's appointment. And then I had to kind of hang out in town while they were at the doctor's appointment, and then I was going to drive them home. And all of a sudden, as I was driving, and I had already dropped them off at the doctor's appointment, I thought, hmm, I'm thirsty. So I reached down to get my water bottle that I always had with me, and I didn't have it. Because it was sitting on my desk at work. I had forgotten to pick it up. And you know what was crazy? I didn't know where you were going to drink the water. <laughs> I mean, I could go to the store and buy a bottle of water if I had to, but I was like, I don't want to buy a bottle of water. But years ago, when I was a little kid, you could go to, to public places and they would just have water fountains, like in a park, or they would have it in your school, or at the library, or at a store. And there are some places that still do have water fountains, but not many. Most places, you have to bring your own water with you. Have you guys ever been thirsty before? Yeah. Have you ever thought, what does it feel like to be thirsty? You've never been that thirsty? Well, have you ever felt like, hmm, I'm, I'm a little bit thirsty. I want to go get something to drink. So if you feel thirsty at your house and you want to get something to drink, what do you do? You go where? So you don't go to the bathroom and dip it up out of the toilet. You go to the kitchen to get water, right? Because you want to have clean water, and you want it, sometimes it's better to have cold water rather than warm water, right? So when you go to the kitchen, where do you get the water from? You have a big thing that sits in the corner, and there's like a jug on top of it? Yeah. No? Oh, you just dump the water into it, and then if there's a spigot or something, you put your cup underneath? Okay. So what happens when you are thirsty, and you go to your kitchen, and you put your cup underneath the spigot, and you turn the spigot, and nothing happens? Because you forgot to add water to that jug. Well, what happens? You didn't have water. You don't have any water. How do you drink? Oh, you go to the sink. So you have water at your sink. Not really. <laughs> so you don't drink the water out of the tap. Okay. So you have to have water in that in that container to drink. So how do you get that water? Where do you get it from? Oh, you go to Fox Springs. So you have to go to a place where there's fresh water and you there's good drinkable water, and then you have to fill some kind of jug or a bucket, right? See, people around most of the uh, people in the United States, not in Alaska so much, but people in the United States. They are so blessed because they don't have to think about where they're going to get their water from. All they do is they go to the kitchen sink and they pull out a cup and they put the cup under the faucet. They pour water. You have water at your house, right? You can drink right out of the sink. I've been to your house before. Do you guys have water at your house and you drink out of the sink or do you guys have to haul your water? You can drink out of the sink. 
Some people are so blessed. You know there are children around the world that don't have water, and they can't even, they have to go afar. This is, there's a picture I wanted to show you. Look up on the screen. It's a little kid, and he has to drink, well, he has to go and get water from a community well. He has to go and get water, and he, he's probably been drinking, because you can see the water coming off of his cheek. That means he probably put his mouth underneath the spigot. But a lot of people, they have to go to the middle of their town or village and bring their buckets and fill it and then carry it back to their house. And this is a lot of work and it's hard work, but it is necessary. You know why? Because if you don't drink, you die. Exactly. You read my notes. <laughs> if you don't eat food for three days, you're hungry, but you don't die. But if you don't drink water for three days, you could die. Seriously, that's how important drinking water is and having good, clean, safe water is. And one of the things that God did in our bodies, the way he created us, he helps us to know when we have to get more water. When our bodies are starting to run low on water and we have to have water to live, then he made our bodies feel thirsty. Hmm, I want to get some water because I'm thirsty. Because I don't want to, I don't like the feeling of being thirsty. Do you? It's not a good feeling. But you know, um, when you're driving down the road and your car, how do you know that your car still has fuel? There's a little thing on the dashboard, right? If it's close to empty, then you go to a gas station. That's called a gasoline gauge or a fuel gauge. Because if you can't be driving down the road and look down inside your fuel tank to find out if you still have gas, you can't do that. So when the creators of the car created the car, they put a little gas gauge on the dashboard so you can see if there's still fuel in the tank. Well, God gave us like a gas gauge, and it's called thirst. The problem is, and not the problem is, but one of the things that the Bible talks about when you read about thirst in the Bible, there's one Bible verse that specifically talks about thirst. It's been up on the screen all morning. I want to read it to us. It's Psalms 41, Psalm 42, Psalm 42, verse 1. And it says, As the deer thirsts for streams of water, so I thirst for you, O God. See, just like the fact that our physical bodies need water to live, our spiritual, person, our spiritual bodies need God to stay alive. And so we need to stay in contact with God and, and be with God. The problem is, we don't feel when we're losing our contact with God. Like we feel when we're thirsty. So how do you know when you need to reconnect with God? And that's what we talked about last week, right? When you sin or when you're when you're getting ready to sin, just like Lincoln did last week, you have to repent and turn away and turn back towards God. The problem is we don't feel that most of the time. So we don't have a gauge to tell us when we're starting to not be connected to God. So we have to kind of remind ourselves, and this is what I love about this. This Bible verse says, as the deer 
thirst for the water, just like the Peter is very thirsty for water, my soul thirsts for God. So, I think one of the coolest ways I could use like a God gauge, like I need to have God in my life, is anytime I see a deer, I can say, God, fill me up. That's a fawn. That picture puts up there, a fawn is a baby deer. So anytime you see a deer, you can say, oh God, fill me up. Oh, wait a minute. We live in Alaska. <laughs> we don't have deer. We have moose. So you can use moose as a God gauge. Every time you're driving down the road or if you're walking around and you see a moose, that can be a reminder to you to go, God, fill me up. That can be cool. You can do what? I'm sorry. Well, they come around your house, so you could do that. I mean, you don't like them coming around your house all the time, but you could do that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Ms. Okay, kids, go up with Miss Fawn. And as you receive your gift, if you would please sit down. That way the children aren't doubling up and tripling up on the people. Of course, if you want two or three gifts, I just keep standing, I guess.
Roy, sit down. Good. Okay. Thank you. Well, as I told you last week, for the next number of weeks, we're going to be talking about prayer. And um, as I was prayerfully trying to um, come up with a topic for my sermon this week, I kept thinking about, oh, it's going to be Mother's Day, so I should do something on mothers. And then it was always this. And all of a sudden, the Lord was like, Bob, you said you were going to talk about prayer. So aren't you supposed to talk about prayer? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I can talk about praying mothers. And then I was like, no. (laughs) And honestly, I did that. I did that a couple, three times. And then finally, the Lord was like, you know, Bob, normally you tell your congregation that you pray and ask me what you should preach about. And you have yet to do that this week. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay, God, what do you want me to preach to your people this week? And literally, it just all came down instantly. I mean, literally within moments, I had almost the entire sermon. I was like, wow, (laughs) I could have saved myself a lot of time and a lot of energy if I had just prayed at the beginning instead of waiting until God reminded me that I was supposed to pray first. Um, So here's what God told me to tell you guys today. Um, In talking about prayer and There are some things that are not new, some things you've probably heard before. And so as a pastor, I'm kind of like, well, I'm supposed to come up with some really fun and cool things that are new. But at times, if it works, why mess with it? So I want to bring up the very first slide. You've seen this if you've been around the church since the 1970s. And it's basically called the pattern of prayer. The pattern of prayer is easy. It's an acronym, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Now, what is adoration? It's easy. Adoration is worshiping God. So when you come to God in prayer, first of all, you love on him. You worship him. That's what you're supposed to do because he's God. But secondly, you need to make sure that your heart is clean before God. So you confess. God, is there anything in my heart, anything in my life, any actions that I've done? That need to be repented of and confessed to you. Then the next part of this prayer pattern is thanksgiving. And it's simply saying, God, I want to thank you for everything you've done for me. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for whatever you need to thank him for. Because these are gifts he's given you. And it's only polite that you would thank him. And then finally, once you have worshipped and adored God... Once you have made sure your heart is clean before God, once you have repented of anything that is not right, and finally, once you've acknowledged that he is the source of everything in your life, 
Then and only then should you come to him and say, I have a need. Because otherwise, all you're doing is using him as a vending machine. If you don't take time to acknowledge him as God and give him the the, the worship and the adoration that he's due and the respect that he's due of coming to him in a clean and, and heartfelt way and faithful way, And honoring him for the things that he's already done for you. All you're doing is treating him like a vending machine. And I would say to you, that type of praying will yield you zero. Um, But I want to focus this morning on this idea of supplication. So we've looked at the pattern of prayer. Well, let's look at what the pattern of supplication could be. Ha ha! Here's where our pastor Bob, the Nazarene pastor, fitted in the Nazarene, Canada and Alaska, uh, I mean Canada and America, U.S. Uh, 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 prayer pattern that they were asking us to pray for. Protection, direction, revelation. We talked about this last week. I don't want to get into a lot of it. But when you come to the time of supplication, when you come to the time of saying, God, these are the things I'm concerned about. First of all, ask him to guard your heart. Ask him to be with you, to surround you, to keep the enemy from having any access to you, to keep you walking in truth and in light, to guard you. Secondly, guide me, O God. If I'm walking down a path that's not right, if my plans aren't right, like trying to preach a sermon about mothers. Guide me the right way, O God, as I come to you with my supplication. And then finally, if there's something that I don't realize or need, or if there's something I need to know that it's just not coming to me, not just a direction for my life, but but truly truth, then, O Holy Spirit, bring this about in my life. So... uh, when you're praying, adore him, confess to him, thanks, thank him. But when you get to the supplication part, recognize who he is. He's the source and ask him to protect and guard you, to guide you, to direct you. And then finally, to reveal to you the things that God needs to reveal to you. Now, the, the, that's the pattern for supplication. But there's a foundation, I would tell you, when you come to the time of your supplication. And these are found in these very, in these verses that I have highlighted on the screen. First of all, Hebrews chapter one, um, chapter 11, verse one. I normally preach using the English standard version. Uh, sometimes I look at other translations because the wording is slightly different and I appreciate the wording. This week, most of the scriptures that I'll be reading to you come out of what's called the new century version. The New Century Version came out in the early 2000s, or the, actually the late 90s, and it was a uh, it was a, a, a written specifically to uh, uh, like a, a fifth grade or sixth grade reading level. So the sentences are a little bit shorter; they're not long sentences. They're not using a lot of theological terms. It's written for. It's a very good translation to use when you're having devotions. Because it's easy reading. You don't have to do a lot of thinking as far as processing. You just simply read it. And it's almost story-like. So that's what I'm going to be reading to you this morning out of the New Century Version. So Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith means being sure of the things that you hope for. Faith is knowing that something is real even if you don't see it. Faith is being sure... Of the things you hope for. 
and knowing that something is real, even if you don't see it. So when you come to God to make your requests known to God, first of all, you have to believe that God's there and hearing you. You have to, and this is kind of hard for me to try and um, pray every time, but you have to truly believe that the things that you're hoping for are going to be real. And, and I want to say that I, I don't want to get too much onto this because I'm going to come back to this in a little bit in just a few minutes. But you need to understand there, I mean, and I don't want you to raise your hand. Okay. But I do want you to take a poll right now. I want you to, to think about it for yourself. How many times when you pray specifically for something, how many times out of 10 are you pretty sure that you're going to get what you pray for? Not that you believe that God could if he chooses to, but that you are going to get it. Because if you don't believe you're going to get it, why are you asking for it? We'll come back to that in a minute. A little bit farther back, a little bit farther on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, no one can please God. In other words, you've got to have faith in God in order to have a good relationship with him. Anyone who comes to God must believe that God is real and that God rewards those who truly want to find him. Now, I'm not using this verse as a litmus test to say that every prayer I pray, I'm going to get what I want because God's there and I believe in God and therefore he's going to reward me for my faith. That's not what I'm saying. No one can please God without faith. Anyone that comes to God must believe that he's real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. But we can extrapolate from that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 of Matthew, where he said, you as earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your children. If your child asks you for a loaf of bread, you're not going to give them a stone. If your child asks you for a piece of fish, you're not going to give them a snake. In the same way, your heavenly father knows what you need and he's going to give these things to you. So Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, if you believe that God is real, you also need to believe that he will truly give you the, the things, the rewards that you truly want to find in him. Matthew chapter 21 Verses 18 through 22. This is a story about Jesus and his disciples. Early in the morning, as Jesus was going back to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a fig tree beside the road, Jesus went to it. But there were no figs on the trees, on the tree, only leaves. So Jesus said to the tree, you will never again have fruit. And the tree immediately dried up. Now this is... Matthew, if you go to Mark, it's either Mark or Luke. I can't remember. I think it's Mark. Mark says it was the next day they came and saw that the fig tree was was withered and, sh and shriveled. Here in Matthew, it says immediately. So we understand that it was overnight. The tree withered. and But the point is, Jesus said, you will be dead. And the tree died. When his followers saw this, verse 20, they were amazed and they asked, how did the fig tree dry up so quickly? And Jesus answered to them, I tell you the truth. 
If you have faith and do not doubt, you will be able to do what I did to this tree. And even more, you will be able to say to this mountain, go fall into the sea. And if you have faith, it will happen. If you believe, you will get anything you ask for in prayer. Let me restate that that verse right there. Verse 22. If you believe, you will get anything you ask for in prayer. Now, quite frankly... I've been a Christian for almost 50 years, and this is one of the passages that I have struggled with the most. I have to believe it, because it's one of those red letter verses. These are Jesus' words. So I have to believe it if I believe in God and I believe in Jesus. But this wasn't some other disciples' thought. This thought came straight from God. If I believe that God is true to God's own word, then I have to believe it. I will get anything I ask for in prayer. The question is, do I? Look at James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. James said to the people to whom he was writing, you do not get what you want because you do not ask God. That's number one. God isn't going to give you if you're not asking. But number two, he then says, or when you ask, you don't receive because you are asking for the wrong reason. You want things so you can use them for your own pleasures. Now, I am taking this out of context. If you go and read it, he's talking about how people are fighting and fussing and quarreling over stuff. And so, but there's a principle here that I wanted to pull out. James says, you don't get what you want because, number one, A, you don't even ask for it. Or B, when you do ask for it, you don't get it because the reason that you asked for it was not right. It was wrong. You want things so you can use them for your own pleasures. And so what I hear there is that if I want to have my prayers answered, I need to make sure that I'm asking prayer. I mean, asking for things in prayer that I know are not selfishly motivated, but that I'm indeed doing it for the right reasons. What are the right reasons? Ah, I, I, hmm, I don't know. I would say definitely to bring about God's glory. If I'm asking for something to happen so it would be God's glory, yay. If I'm asking for something to happen so that it would be the advancement of the kingdom of God, yay. But the rest of it, I have to really weigh it out. For example, again, this is being recorded, so I, I don't know that I want to use names. But if I say a person, you'll know who I'm talking about. Because we've prayed for them already today. I have a friend who's in the hospital right now. His friend has been sick for a long time. The doctors did say to them this week that this illness that's going on right now is not leading to death. It's just an illness that needs to be treated. How do I pray? God, heal this person. What if God doesn't? Did I pray wrong? Should I have prayed that prayer? God, bring about your glory. That's weak. Because that's actually, in my mind, 
saying I don't have enough faith to truly ask what I want. But what do I want? Do I want a miraculous healing from the 100% of any illness or, or any disease or decay that's in their body to be completely obliterated so that they can be walking around a 100% uh, viable human being for the next 20 years? Or do I want simply this particular illness that's going on right now to be eradicated so they can go back to being a cancer patient? What am I supposed to pray? How am I supposed to pray? And how am I supposed to pray in faith? Believing that I'm going to get what I ask for. And is it appropriate and right for me to ask in prayer for any of this? Hmm. Pastor, will you pray for me, please? Sure, I'll pray for you. Don't say that lightly. Let's go to a story in the Bible that talks about prayer and talks about the dilemma of praying the right thing so that you indeed receive what you pray for so that God's name can be glorified and the kingdom of God can be advanced. That's an interesting story, but it's there in the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 43. I'll read it to us. In the city of Joppa, there was a follower named Tabitha, whose Greek name was Dorcas. It's better she goes by the Hebrew name Tabitha. She was always doing good deeds and kind acts. And while Peter was in Lydda, Tabitha became sick and died. Her body was washed and put in a room upstairs. Since Lydda is near Joppa and the followers in Joppa heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two messengers to Peter. They begged him, hurry, please come to us. So Peter got ready and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room where all the widows stood around Peter, who were, and they were crying. They showed Peter the shirts and the coats that Tabitha had made when she was still alive. Peter then sent everyone out of the room and knelt and prayed. Then he turned to the body and he said, Tabitha, stand up. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and he helped her up. Then he called the saints and the widows into the room and he showed them that Tabitha was alive. And the people everywhere in Joppa learned about this and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with a man named Simon, who was a tanner. Now, I already said this, but I want to restate it so you understand. Tabitha is a Hebrew name. Dorcas is the Greek translation of the name Tabitha. What would be the English translation of the name Tabitha? Does anybody know? Fawn. And that's why there's a picture of a fawn on today's devotional slide. Tabitha, Dorcas, Fawn. Isn't Fawn a much nicer name than Dorcas? Imagine if you named your child Dorcas. I mean, it was kind because she's a wonderful Christian woman who served her community well. But can you imagine a third grader going, my name is Dorcas. Not a nice, kind thing to do to your child. But my name is Fawn. Oh, I think of Bambi and flowers in the field. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. <laughs> now, I want to talk to you, though, before we, before we dissect this story, you need to understand that 
Prior to this, Peter went through some training. God brought Peter through a period of training uh, to bring him to this moment of ministry. If you look at Hebrews, I mean, excuse me, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just give you the synopsis of it. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is a story of Peter and John coming to the temple at the hour of prayer. And there's a beggar who's been there for many, many, many years. I believe he's 40 years old. And he lays at that gate called Beautiful Begging every day to raise money for himself so that he can live. And this one day, he's laying there. Peter and John come up and the beggar looks at Peter and says, Give me something, give me something. And Peter stops, catches his eye, stands there and says, Silver or gold, I don't have any of that. But what I do have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus. Rise and walk. So Peter is used of God to heal a man who had been crippled for over 40 years. So this is one of Peter's trainings in how to do miracles. Peter is is learning as a, as a, as a new leader in the church, not only to be a preacher... And if you go back to Acts chapter, uh, if you go into Acts chapter 6, you're going to see that Peter and the apostles spent many, many, many hours in prayer. They, they, Peter said that they would be focused on prayer and the ministry of the word while the deacons served. So that that could be the focus of their ministry. But Peter and John were going to the chapel, to the temple to pray and then God presented him an opportunity and he used the faith that he had and the experience that he had with God and he literally said in the name of Jesus rise and walk and did it in a public way so that the word of God went out and the, it says that the, the kingdom of God advanced by 2,000 souls that day because it went from 3,000 to 5,000. Then if you go to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and Peter's in a private room with believers, and Ananias comes in and says, here's my offering. And he said, is that all the money that you got? Yep, that's all I got. Be dead. And Ananias dies. That's a pretty powerful story. And then an hour later, Sapphira, the wife of Ananias, comes in, and she said, and Peter says, hey, Sapphira, your husband gave us 50 bucks. Is that all the money that you got for the sale of your property? Sure is. Be dead. And she drops dead and they bury her next to her husband. Can you imagine being Peter, having that kind of experience, knowing that you have the power of life and death through your words, empowered by the Holy Spirit, of course, in using it for God's glory, of course. But to be able to literally tell someone to drop dead and they do. That's a powerful training that God put Peter through. Then, if you read Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, which is literally the the passage right after the Ananias and Sapphira thing. I'm going to read that one out loud. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is in the temple. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that maybe Peter's shadow might at least fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. God was moving in such a powerful way that literally all that had to happen was Peter's shadow had to fall across someone who needed healing and the power of God was coming out of his shadow. Incredible training in miracles. But there was one other training that took place before Jesus' death in relation to this story of Peter and Tabitha and the raising up of Tabitha. And that's found in the Gospels. The, the, it's actually in a couple verses, but we're going to look at the Luke chapter 8 version. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And we don't have time to read the whole thing this morning. You can look it up for yourself later. But Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. I want to give you a real quick synopsis. So Jesus is returning. There's a man named Jairus who comes to him and says, my daughter's sick. She's 12 years old. She's dying. Jesus says, okay, let's go. They're going through the streets. This woman presses up against, I mean, the crowd is pressing up against Jesus. This woman who's got a bleeding issue for 12 years, crawls through the crowd, touches the tassels of Jesus's garment. Glory flows out of Jesus. Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Peter says, what do you mean who touched you? You're in a crowd. And Jesus says, no, I felt glory go out. Somebody touched me. Give glory to God. I need to know who got the healing. This woman stands up. She says, I was the one healed. He said, your faith has made you well. Let's go. While all of that's going on, the servants of Jairus come to Jairus and stand in the street and say, stop bothering the teacher. Your daughter has already died. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus then leads Jairus back to the house. Jairus, his wife, Jesus and three disciples, Peter, James, and John, go upstairs. All of the mourners are there screaming and crying and wailing. And Jesus says, what are you doing? She's not dead. She's only asleep. Everyone laughs at him and treats him like he's an idiot. He says, get out. And it's mom, dad, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha kumin, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. She gets up, he says to her, he says to the parents, give her something to eat. She needs to eat. She's been sick. She needs some strength. And then everybody's happy and it's wonderful and glorious. Peter was there. He saw it all. Now, let's go back to the Tabitha thing. If you go back and read Acts chapter 9, the story of Peter and Tabitha. You see almost exactly the same scenario. Peter's called because someone is in need. They don't tell him she's dead when he comes. They just said, come, we need you. He gets there wailing and moaning. Oh, but they're showing him all of the clothing that she made, all of the articles that she was telling her how wonderful she was. We're not given in that passage that they actually asked him to raise her from the dead, but they brought him there for something. They showed him all of the articles, showed him how wonderful a Christian she was. And then he sends everyone out of the room and it's just him and Tabitha's body. And what does he do? 
Well, if you look at Acts chapter 9, verse 40, it says, Before he tried to do any kind of miraculous work, he got on his knees and he prayed. And that's the difference between what Jesus did with Jairus' daughter and what Peter did in the raising up of Tabitha. Peter got on his knees and prayed. What did he pray? Well, if you go back to what we've talked about so far this morning, if he was a good Nazarene listening to Pastor Bob, we would say that he probably spent time in worship and confessing, making sure he was clean, thanking God for the ministry that he'd had so far, and came to the point of supplication. Supplication, Hebrews 11.1, 1, again, means believing in God, trusting in God. 11.6 is believing in God and believing he rewards those who seek him. Matthew 21.22, I don't remember that one. What was that one again? Off the top of my head, I don't have it in front of me. Hold on. If you believe, you can, thank you. My brain is just, if you believe anything you ask for, anything you can get. James, you only get it if you ask for the right motive. Okay, God, protect me. (laughs) Keep all the enemies away from here, please. God, I only want to do what's right. Direct me. I do not want to act out of presumption. I don't want to declare something that's not your will. Oh, God, if I'm doing anything wrong, reveal it to me. Otherwise, I think this is the path I need to take. I ask for you to help me. Is this your will? All right. Tabitha, get up. Takes her by the hand and takes her up and brings her out. Glory, glory, glory. Everybody's happy. And the kingdom of God gets advanced. I didn't learn that from this. I learned that, not not the, the, the thing about Peter praying, but I mean this whole idea of praying before you get into it, praying before you pray, is came from this one. Bring up the, the Elaine Pettit slide. For those of you who've been part of this church longer than 15 years, when I was new to this congregation, new to my ministry, new to being a pastor, I was receiving mail from a ministry out of Michigan, I think it is, uh, or Minnesota. I can never get the M states right. But Reverend Elaine Pettit is an evangelist in the Church of the Nazarene. And somehow this church got onto her mailing list. And I was receiving letters and, and advertisement from Elaine Pettit's ministries. And I would get them, open them up, oh, yeah, 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 and throw them in the trash. Every single time. Until... This one time. Now, I can't for the life of me remember what year it was. If you want to know, ask Elsie. She knows exactly what year it was. What year was it? 2008. 2008. So it was in 2007. In the, in the, in January or February of 2007, I received this mailing from, uh, Elaine Pettit's Ministries. And I opened it up and as normal, I went to throw it out and the Holy Spirit said, what are you doing? Read this. So I did. And the Holy Spirit prompted me to contact Elaine Pettit and say, we're a tiny little congregation. 
I don't know how you could even afford to come here. We can't afford to pay you anything. But if you're willing, we would love to have you come. And she contacted me back and she said, I tell you what, I'll come for this amount and I'll bring the rest of my ministry team with me all on my own dime. But this is what I ask of you. And what she said to us was foundational to the success of the of the revival services she held. But it is foundational to her ministry. And this is what it is. She has founded her entire ministry in prayer. Elaine Pettit spends three hours minimum every day in prayer. Three hours. How much did you pray last week? I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm telling you how serious this woman takes it. This woman said to us, I will come on my own dime. I'll ask you to pay this little bit, little bit. I think the end result was we paid like $2,500 and that wasn't what she asked. We, we gave over and above, but she gave us a full week of ministry. She brought a whole team of people with her and we only had to pay $2,500 for all of that. And she even paid for her own lodging. We didn't have to pay for the lodging or the food or anything. And she, what she did say to us was, if we're going to do this, this is what I expect from you. You need to get a team of intercessors from your church and every month for a minimum of six months, you need to spend a part of the day in prayer together as a group, fasting and praying. Are you willing to do that? Yes, we are. So we did. Ruth Rutinsky, a friend of ours, loaned us the use. No, no, it wasn't yours. It was um, it was the Mackinaws. They loaned us the use of their cabin at mile 53. And we had a group of about five or six or seven people who met every single month on a Saturday. And we fasted and we prayed specifically for God's hand to move in this ministry. And God moved in a powerful and mighty way. And this relatively green pastor... When Reverend Elaine Pettit came to our church, learned that I needed to pray before I pray. Think about that. I need to pray before I pray. What? Well, she shared with me privately, not in her services, but privately in our home. She said, Pastor, I was praying during one of my three-hour prayer times for this church that I was at. And there was a pew in the back of these elders who sat there stoically. And I got on my face before God the next morning, and my intent was to pray for those elders who seemed so aloof during the service the night before. And she said, do you know what the Holy Spirit of God said to me when I got on my knees to begin to pray for these people? The Holy Spirit of God said to me, Ichabod. Do you know what Ichabod means? It means the glory has departed. God, the Holy Spirit, told Reverend Elaine Pettit, don't pray for those people. You're wasting your breath. They are no longer one of mine. They no longer have any connection to me. They are just here trying to to keep their authority in place. Do not pray for them. Can you imagine God telling somebody not to pray for you because of Ichabod? But that's the truth. Now, she wouldn't tell me what church, of course. But can you imagine? Now, another one. 
This, I don't know if she told this in the, in the service or if she just told it to me privately. This one um, was even worse for me. She was, she was in the habit of when there, was an, when there was the end of the service, there was an altar call and people would come forward to pray and then she would kneel down next to them or in front of them and she would pray for them. But she would say to them, what is it that you want me to pray for? They would then tell her what she wanted them to pray for. And then she would say to them, please allow me to pray and then I will pray. And so she did. She said she got down to the altar and there was Nancy Nazarene. Nancy Nazarene dressed to the, to the, just beautifully wearing her beautiful cocktail length dress with her hair perfectly coiffed, her manicure, her makeup. She was wearing pearls. She was the epitome of Midwestern Nazarendom. Nancy Nazarene was at the altar asking for prayer. And Elaine Pettit said, let me pray before I pray. And she said to God, what should I pray for in her behalf? And God said, you tell that woman that she is darker in my eyes than the man who murdered her son. That she is sour and that I have no use for her prayers. And that I welcome him into my relationship before I even think about welcoming her. And Elaine Pettit, Reverend Elaine Pettit, who just preached a worship, an evangelistic message, brought the woman to the altar. The wall, oh, well, woman needs prayer for something she's dealing with. And God says, you tell her she's vile in my eyes. You tell her she's sour in my eyes. You tell her I hold her son's murder in higher esteem than I hold her. And you tell her these words. Okay, Nancy, God wants me to tell you that you're sour, that you're vile, and that he holds your son's murderer in higher esteem than he holds you. And it broke the dam. And Nancy was finally able to forgive the man who had murdered her son. Because she was holding that bitterness in and she refused to let it go. She was blocking any hope of having clean and clear relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. And until that was gone, she couldn't get anything else from God. And God used a woman of God who was powerful in prayer and who now knew how to hear from God to speak words of truth that brought life. Learn to pray before you pray. So in conclusion... What revelation did Peter seek? I believe, and this isn't in the passage, but I believe that Peter asked God to reveal to Peter what God's perfect will was regarding Tabitha's death. Peter asked God what he should pray for. And in so doing, he was assured that he would receive what he prayed for in accordance with Matthew 21, 22. If you believe, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will. But it's presumptuous to pray wrongly. 
And so my answer or my, 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 my challenge to all of us, and I'm pointing back at me when I'm pointing out to you guys. Examine yourselves. Look at your prayer life. Number one, do you do it well? Number two, when you pray and you ask God for the things that you are desiring, what is your motivation? Are you indeed believing that he can do it beyond any belief? And number two, do you believe that you're doing it for his glory, for his purposes and not out of selfishness? And then finally, are you willing to do the hard stuff? Like telling Nancy she's a sour, vile Murderer. If you are, you're one of the few. Most of us have a long ways to go in our prayer time, myself included. And I challenge you, don't walk out of here thinking, oh, that was a nice sermon, but really and truly put it to practice. Begin to exercise this. Pray and ask God, help me to see my prayers really happen. Train me in such a way that I know that when I pray, you hear and you act. Not for my glory, but for the advancement of the kingdom, for the glory of God, to bring people to faith. I challenge you, if you will do that, God will bring it about. Let's pray. (laughs) And we should pray how we're going to pray. Father, I have every confidence that the words I spoke were yours. If indeed there was anything that wasn't of you, please just let it fall to the wayside. But God, I ask that you would begin a work in us. That we would begin to see the hand of God move in a way we've never experienced before. That your kingdom would be advanced, that your your word would be honored, that your your name would be glorified. That we would see Miracles. God, I give you praise. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.